You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Nobody plays basketball like New York, and we're 
Long Island. Bernard King was my personal favorite player for the New York Knicks. And Tiny Archibald, and Bob Cousy, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. We had older teenagers in our neighborhood by the name of Dwayne Pearl Washington, who was my neighborhood superhero. I wanted to be Pearl Washington when I grew up because of what he was doing at Boys and Girls High School in Brooklyn. There were guys named Walter Berry uh, from the Bronx who would go on to be the NCAA Player of the Year. There was this band of brothers in Coney Island called the Marbury Brothers, whose little baby brother, Stefan, would go on to be better than all of them. There was this white guy from Brooklyn by the name of Chris Mullen, who was one of the most unbelievable shooters. So, you know, we're rattling off all these names, and we're talking about how great New York City is, and there's an older guy who lives in our building. So we're 11, 12 years old. He's probably in his early 20s, and he was an excellent playground basketball player. We followed him around to all of these different tournaments and watched him play, and he could hold his own against anybody. And he said, yeah, New York might be the king of New York, but the greatest team I ever saw is a high school team from Baltimore called the Dunbar Poets. So we said, a high school team? You know, this is at the time where Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and the Celtics and the Lakers have this great rivalry going on. And to us, that's the greatest basketball we ever saw. Dr. J, Bo Cheeks, Moses Malone, six. The greatest team you ever saw is a high school team from Baltimore? And so he started explaining to us, every player on the bench is going Division I on the scouts. They've got the number one player in the country by the name of Reggie Williams. And he is unbelievable. He's six foot seven. He can do everything on the basketball court. He can play every position on the floor. Uh, wait till you see this guy play. He's marvelous. Unbelievable. But the crazy thing is, he's not even the best player on his own team. So wait a minute, let me get this straight. He's the number one player in the country. He can play every position on the court. There's nothing he can't do. He's amazing, and he's not even the best player on his own team. So now our curiosity is peaked. Who's the best player? You won't believe me. Who's the best player? We kept bugging him and kept bugging him. He said, all right, I'll tell you. I'm going to believe it. He said, the best player is a five-foot midget, <laughs> and his name is Bugsy. We called him Bugsy. <laughs> and we thought, he was joking. We, we thought he was pulling our leg. And so, fast forward a couple years later, I'm watching this innovative new cable television network with this idea of 24-hour-a-day sports programming. I'm in heaven because I get basketball every night now. And I watch Wake Forest University, and I see a 5-foot-3-inch athletic marvel by the name of Bugsy Bogues who could dominate a game without scoring a point. And I scream to no one in particular, that's Bugsy! And so I had to find out read the box scores after every game. And I couldn't believe what I was seeing because I've never seen anything like it. And I, I'm pretty sure I saw some great basketball going on as a kid. And then I happened to be in Massachusetts at the time, and there was a guy by the name of Reggie Lewis at Northeastern University who was one of the most exceptional college basketball players, not just in Boston, not just in New England, 
but in the entire country. And so I would hop on the, the Boston subway system, the T, and I would go to the Northeastern Gym. And when they played in the Boston Garden, there was some really good basketball being played at the time up in that area. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the, another diminutive guy by the name of Dana Barrows, who was at Boston College. And so I would watch Reggie play, and I was just awestruck because, you know, he was nothing but nerve and sinew and skinny, but he was unstoppable. Somebody told me, you know, that guy didn't even start for a high school team. I thought he was lying. And then I looked it up, and sure enough, he played on this Dunbar team with Muggsy. And then I'm watching Hoya Paranoia at the apex of Georgetown University when they ruled the college basketball <coughs> landscape. And I'm watching this defensive wonder by the name of David Wingate who can run like a jet and soar like a bird. And then I see the guy that I was told was the number one player in the country in high school by the name of Reggie Williams. How good was Reggie as a freshman at Georgetown? He was the most outstanding player of the Final Four, scored 19 points, grabbed seven rebounds in the national championship game when they beat an unbelievable University of Houston five-slam-a-jamma team with Akeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler. And I said, holy smokes, that guy was in high school last year. And so that was how the seeds of the story got planted. And it really kind of turned over and turned over in my brain for a long time. And then, you know, we'll kind of fast forward a little bit. And so now I'm a sports writer, right? I'm doing what I love. This is my passion. And this idea just keeps coming to me. So I got to tell the story. And so I sent it to a major magazine as a story pitch. And the editor, in his infinite wisdom, thankfully got back to me and said, no, we're not going to use it, but I'm going to tell you why. So I was a little bit disappointed. He said, it's a magnificent story, but this ain't a magazine story, brother. This is a book. And so he put me on the path to figure out how to turn a two-paragraph magazine proposal story idea pitch into a 80-page book proposal. And that took a very long time. But today, the finished product just came out this week, The Boys of Dunbar, A Story of Love, Hope, and Basketball. It's been a passion project, something I poured my heart and soul into, and I'm really excited for people to take a look at it because as much as I love basketball and as great as they were on the court, it's not a basketball story at all. It's about family, it's about love, it's about hope. For people in this room that were around at the time, that were in the Civic Center, when it was standing room only, that were in the Cathedral of the Dunbar Gym, that were there when the cheerleaders were cheering and the crowd was singing and chanting all of the Dunbar songs. If you experienced it, you, you kind of know what I'm talking about. And this book kind of recreates something that happened 35 years ago, something that we'll probably never see again. Four guys from the same high school team that went to the NBA, but what makes it so magnificent, I mean, one player making it to the NBA, the odds are astronomical. Right? Kids see LeBron James and think that's going to be them. You got better odds of 
hitting the Powerball, getting struck by lightning, and making love to Halle Berry in the same day <laughs> than you do making it to the NBA. Four guys. But this wasn't a team that was recruiting. Right? Today, you look at the prep schools that are ranked high. They're recruiting kids not only from all over the country, but from Australia, Africa, all over the globe. This was a team of guys who grew up together playing on milk crates in the back alleys because the older guys shooed them off the court. They ate at the same dinner tables before they showed a hint of athletic promise. They roller skated together. They played football together. They played baseball together. This was a time when baseball was really big in the African-American community. They grew up together like brothers, had no idea what they would go on to do. And so by the time they come together in high school to see where they went and what they did and how magnificent they were, I don't think we'll ever see anything like it again. Um, I want to thank my colleague, David Steele. For those of you that don't know, he is, if not the, one of the best sports columnists in the country. And I'm upset that he's not the sun because I don't get to read him every day. But um, I always check out what he does with the sporting news. Um, his work speaks for itself. He himself is an accomplished author who told a magnificent story in book form. And I'm honored that he decided to come here and kind of moderate this conversation and talk with us tonight. So thanks for coming. I'm going to sit down and Dave and I are going to talk. And then uh, in a little while we'll open the floor up to anyone that, that has any questions. Appreciate that. Thank you for that compliment, of course. You know, you answered so many questions just now with that uh, fantastic introduction about how you uh, went from the germ of an idea like that to turning it into, uh, into book form. And one of the things I was fascinated by, though, was that you said it's more than a basketball book. Um, at what point in the process did you realize that it was going to be a lot more than just telling the story of that basketball team. I think that moment hit me when I decided to dig into the archives right around the corner um, and start going back to the early 80s and reading the Baltimore Sun and the Baltimore News American and getting a sense for what was going on in Baltimore at the time. Because obviously things don't happen in a vacuum. So yeah, you had this great team, but you also had a beautiful black city that was struggling. Previously, you had folks that came from the cotton fields and the tobacco farms during a time when the agrarian agriculture down south, that economy kind of slowed down and there were no jobs down there anymore and people were in search of the promised land. And so you had this great northern migration and Baltimore was a magnificent place where a person could come who had little to no education, where the World War II impetus was um, having these iron foundries and the steel mills and the car factories that were running three shifts a day. So you had millions of folks that came up here in search of the American dream, and this was once the promised land for them. And then 
when we fast forward now to the early 80s and I'm reading about what's happening here in the city, you know, at the paper at the time, the General Motors plants were closing. Beth Steele was laying off people every week, every month. Um, the factory, the union wage, all of that just suddenly died. And so you had a community of folks who came here and were able to get great jobs and who were able to buy their own homes and were proudly able to scrub their marble steps on the weekend and have dreams of putting their kids through college. And a lot of that went by the wayside. And then I also started to take a look at the crime statistics and what was happening at the time. And I noticed that there was this plague moving into the city called crack cocaine. And so what happened was, you know, Baltimore always has been historically a dope town, a heroin town. But the older generation of heroin kingpins conducted business in a certain way. They kept it away from schools. They distributed it in nightclubs. They made uh, deliveries to people's homes. It really was kind of kept. It was a closed society. By the time this team comes along in the early 80s, I'm seeing all of these murders that are taking place outdoors. And I'm noticing the crime statistics and what's happening because on the one hand, you have all of the jobs that have left, so people are struggling. On the other hand, there was a federal task force that took out a lot of the older heroin dealers and some young guys moved into this vacuum and said, this new cocaine thing is really powerful and the profit margins are unbelievable and if I have an adult that's caught selling my stuff, I got to pay for a lawyer. He might do 10 years. If I got a kid selling my stuff and he's under 18 years old, he's going to be sent to juvie and the next day he's going to be home. So you had this recruitment of a young army that opened what is now known as the open-air drug markets that ran 24 hours a day for over 20 years. And so I'm reading all of this stuff, and I'm saying, okay, I've got this great basketball story, but when these guys come out of the gym, this is what's happening around them. And so that's when I kind of got a sense that, man, this is a great basketball story, but it's about so much more. And I want to not only tell a, a story about this great basketball team, but I want to tell a story about East Baltimore. I want to tell a story about Baltimore. Um, and that's when I kind of knew that I was on to something a little bit different than what I had initially anticipated. Yeah, and, and so much of that story does take place outside of the gym there in, uh, in, at, 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 over at Dunbar. It takes place at, at places that don't exist anymore. I mean, there's so much in that book about Lafayette Homes, uh, about the Lafayette Rec, Rec, uh, Rec Center, uh, the entire Rec Center system in this uh, this city. What did you learn about that? Because I guess once you got here to Baltimore for good, um, it was either, pro I would have to guess, it was either at the tail end of the, of, of that time or they had already they had already torn those down and started shutting yeah. down all the Rec Centers yeah. and stuff. I mean, I... I got to Baltimore, I moved to Baltimore about 14 or 15 years ago, and the first place I went, I didn't go down to the harbor, I didn't go get a crab cake, 
I went to Paul Lawrence Dunbar High School because I had to see this place. And um, I started to learn about this great incubator system of the recreation centers. And so one of the things in researching the book and one of my favorite characters, you, you probably won't get an understanding in terms of reading the book, but Leon Howard, who was the longtime director of the Lafayette Courts Recreation Center, was just this amazing individual in and of himself who could warrant his own autobiography. And so I started to learn about how powerful the recreation centers were and the oasis that they provided to these young people who came there and, and spent time there. And one of the things that really fascinated me, Dave, and something else that let me know that this was more than just a story of this basketball team was, in talking to Leon Howard and doing my research, I realized that there was a direct link from Dr. James Naismith, who invented the game of basketball in 1891 in Springfield, Massachusetts, to the Lafayette Courts Recreation Center in East Baltimore in the early 80s. And how that happened was, Dr. James Naismith's most innovative disciple was a man by the name of John McClendon. And for people who know the history of basketball, uh, Coach McClendon was just inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame as a coach in this most recent class a few weeks ago with Shaq and Allen Iverson um, and the rest of that class. He'd previously been in as a contributor, which was a total disservice because he's one of the greatest coaches ever in the history of basketball. And so John McClendon was, they call him the father of the fast break. Dean Smith is credited with inventing this four corners offense. That's a myth. John McClendon invented the four corners offense back in the 40s, a long time ago. And so he learned the game from Naismith, and they talked about how it should be played. And they came up with this philosophy that you don't walk the ball up the court. You run that thing down the other team's throat. You don't just play five guys. You put five guys in. You bring a next wave of five. You bring another wave of five. It's like a torrential downpour where they just can't take it. You, you suffocate the other team. So everything was attack, 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 attack. That was the philosophy that McClendon and James Naismith came up with. So circling back to Leon Howard, who is now in this book, he's the director of the Lafayette Courts Recreation Center. Leon Howard played college basketball at Johnson C. Smith College in Charlotte, North Carolina in the CIAA Conference. The best coach in the CIAA Conference at the time was, take a guess, John McClendon, okay? The man who directly learned the game from Dr. James Naismith. So all of the coaches, if they wanted to keep pace and not get run out of the gym by McClendon's teams, they had to incorporate his philosophies, right? There was no way to beat him other than to play the game the way that he played. So the game and the drills and the skills that Leon Howard learned were the same ones that John McClendon taught, who learned the game from Dr. James Naismith. And so when Leon Howard is at the Lafayette Courts Recreation Center, the drills and the skills and, the, and, and all of the workouts that he's going through 
with an eight-year-old Muggsy Bogues and an eight-year-old Reggie Williams and all of these other kids from Lafayette who just want to learn how to play basketball. He never just threw the ball out there and said, go play. He taught them how to play the way he learned how to play. And the way he learned how to play was passed down from John McClendon, who learned a lesson from the man who invented the game. So that when I put those pieces together, I was, I was humbled. I was like, wow. Basically, the womb of the game of basketball can be traced from East Baltimore, Lafayette Courts Recreation Center, all the way back to the invention of the game. And so when we talk about how important were the recreation centers, it doesn't get any bigger and kind of more awe-inspiring than that. And one of the amazing things about that story, now, and the, the big thing I was scared about when you asked me to do this was that we would be giving away all these spoilers from the book. <laughs> it's like, so please buy the book anyway, because I'm saying when I saw that, that, that anecdote, like my jaw literally uh, hit the ground. But when he arrived at that rec center, it taught the game of basketball as, a direct, as part of the direct lineage from the man who invented basketball. They did not have a basketball net at that, uh, at that recreation center. They didn't Tell have a story. hoop. They didn't, they didn't have, have a hoop. rim. He walked into the Lafayette Recreation Center, um, and he opened his eyes and said, what the heck did I get myself into? It was just an activity room. They had a, um, a pool table. And in the summertime, he'd throw a piece of plywood on top of it so they could do an arts and crafts activity. And so he had to get very creative in creating these physical activities for the kids. And he kept saying, i got to get me a hoop. got to get me a hoop. And so there was this um, outfit called um, Operation Champ that used to bring basketball courts outside to Lafayette courts. And he noticed that the kids couldn't play a lick but they loved, they flooded these courts, and he kept saying, I gotta get me one. There was a fire in a storage facility that destroyed everything except one basketball hoop. And the guy from Operation Champ called him and said, Hey, Mr. Howard, because he was always bugging him, saying, I gotta get me this hoop. One hoop survived the fire, and the guy called him, he said, Hey, Leon, you want a hoop? He got a truck from the city maintenance department, went over there put the hoop up at Lafayette and was so proud of himself and then he realized that there were a hundred kids running over each other on this one hoop and said, i got to give me another hoop. And so he designed the specifications, he saved his own money, bought the materials, had one of the talented uh, folks that worked in the maintenance department build another hoop. And so the program was off and running, right? Except for one thing. He said, the kids would tell him, Mr. Mr. Leon, I know how to play. I know how to play. And so he said, all right, I'm going to see. Now, Leon Howard played college basketball. So he's good, right? He t tells the kids who think they can play to come over and play a game against him. It was like four of them against one of him, and he destroyed them. He said, man, them kids can't play a lick. I got to teach them how to play. And so it goes back to what we said earlier, right? He didn't just throw the balls out and say, all right, kids, play. So he had these stations set up. 
He had these drills set up. He might have not had the greatest equipment, but he'd pull some chairs out and say, all right, you got to dribble around these chairs. When you get to this chair, you go behind your back ten times. When you get to this chair, you got to do this crossover move. So he taught them these skills, and he eventually found a young kid by the name of Alan Harper Wise, who showed some great potential when Mr. Howard coached him in baseball and in football. And he, he found the kids in these other sports. And he said, I'm going to find the best athletes. I'm going to teach them how to play basketball, and we're going to tear this city up. He teaches Alan Harper Wise the game. Alan Harper Wise was more popularly known as Skip Honey Dip. Skip blossoms into what is still considered today the greatest player to ever come out of Baltimore. Carmelo's going to the Hall of Fame. Sam Cassell was fantastic. Will Barton's making some great money in the NBA right now. Muggsy was fantastic. Reggie Williams was fantastic. If Skip Wise hadn't fallen off the track, he was every bit the player of an Oscar Robertson, of a Jerry West. He was unbelievable. And so Skip says... Once he learned this game from Mr. Howard, he couldn't stop. His mother knew that he wouldn't be home until late at night, but she didn't worry because he'd be in the gym playing with Mr. Howard. And so they would have these battles and these one-on-one games, and he said he just wanted to beat Mr. Howard. And Mr. Howard was very, very smart in what he did. He did not allow Skip to call a foul, and he would bludgeon him. He would beat him. Skip said he would be in tears, crying. And he said, Mr. Howard didn't care. Stop crying, baby. And he said he got smart and said, I'm tired of going inside because when I get close to the guy, he keeps beating me up. That's how he got the shooting range. And so for people that were around when Skip was at Dunbar and saw him, he would pull up from 35 feet and the fans in the, in the stands would scream in unison, lay up, because his shot was so sweet. And he said he didn't realize until he got older that the reason why he became so good and could make all those difficult shots was because Mr. Howard didn't allow him to call a foul. So he had to play through it. And so when Mr. Howard would bang him in the ribs, he learned how to adjust his shot and make his shots. So Skip becomes the greatest player ever to come out of Baltimore. And that is a direct result of Mr. Howard starting this basketball program. And when he started it, they were terrible. They didn't have uniforms. They had old baseball jerseys. And at the end of each game, they'd have to pass the baseball jerseys on to the next team that played behind them. So the thing was, Skip said, we wanted to be the first team to play that day because if you were the fourth team, you were wearing a stinky, nasty, wet baseball jersey. And so Skip changes the whole dynamic. And... Dunbar defeats the great DeMatha squad with Adrian Dantley when he's the number one school in the country. And the college recruiters go, wait, there's no talent in Baltimore. We go to Philly. We go to D.C. We go to New York to get the talent. Who is this Skip Wise? What is this Dunbar thing? And that's all a direct result of what Leon Howard put into Skip. And so Leon Howard put those same things into Bugsy and Reggie and all of the other guys. So by the time they came along, They had 
game jerseys that were provided by Jerry Tarkanian at UNLV. They had University of Maryland jerseys. All of the college coaches would send Leon Howard uniforms and practice jerseys with the hope that if the next Skip Wise came along, they were going to get Mr. Howard to help them send him to school. So um, fascinating character, unbelievable. If you were to pass him by on the street, you would not know that he's probably the one man that's most responsible for Baltimore becoming what it is today as a hotbed of basketball talent. And that, for me, was maybe the most fascinating story or fascinating aspect of the book. You know, and I've had a chance to you know, meet a lot of the people at the Breck Centers and things like that. I did not know about him, and I did not know about his role in just laying the foundation for what the Dunbar program, uh, the pro- what Dunbar program became. Which makes me curious, when you were doing all this research, um, and again, you're coming from you know an outside perspective. You're you're you're, you're a Brooklyn guy. Um, what what did you dig up that that surprised you the most, either about the city, the school, those kids, the the the, the program, just the, the the entire picture? What did you when you when you when you found that, when you uncovered that nugget, did you just sort of fall back and go like, wow, the way I, the way I did when I saw that? Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, connection from James Nason through John McClendon and, and everybody else. Dave, I think the thing that made the biggest impact on me was the more I found out about uh, head coach Bob Wade because I knew he was a great basketball coach and I knew he coached these great basketball teams. And, you know, unfortunately, the legacy at the time was great high school coach, couldn't cut it, was in above his head at the University of Maryland and left the program in shambles, right? The more... I spoke to Coach Wade. The more I learned about his story, um, he is one of the greatest mentors to young people to have ever walked along the high school landscape in this country. He was adamant that education was a passport to a better life. And so people saw that he was creating these NBA players. He was also the head football coach, right? He sent guys into the NFL. There were over 100 kids that got scholarships to play in college that he coached during his tenure at Dunbar, but that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of who he was as a man. So, you know, on the outside, he could be abrasive, and, you know, if he didn't like you, he didn't like you, and he could care less. His whole thing was, I'm going to take care of these kids, and I'm going to arm them with the weaponry to be a productive citizen in life. And when they're done with sports, whether it's the last game in high school, the last game in college, or if they play 15 years in the NBA, I want them to make a positive difference in somebody's life. And just to see how much he loved them, Dave, and to see the sense of family. Now, people say it all the time, right, on teams, we're a family, we're a family. This really was a family. Bob Wade went to Dunbar High School. A generation earlier. He knew these kids' families before they were even born. Right? They were in the gym as little kids. And he'd pat them on the head and say, how many years until you're going to come play for me? He had no idea what Muggsy Bogues would become. He had no idea what Reggie Williams would become. But he knew their families. So these little guys are in the gym doing the cheers. They don't even know what they're going to do. Dunbar High School 
for folks that don't really know, is a community institution. And it began to hit me that just like the role that the great black churches played throughout Baltimore's history, Dunbar High School was every bit as much of an institution as those black churches in terms of what they gave to families. There was a magnificent principal by the name of Julia Woodland, who the more I learned about, she was a product of Baltimore City Schools. She went on to get two master's degrees, and she was a force of nature in her own right. As great as a coach as Bob Wade was, she was as great, if not a greater principal. And she loved those children, and she nourished those children, and she invested her time and energy and would tell them, you know, if I see you on the 6 o'clock news, it better be because you did something good. You know, she opened Dunbar High School up to the parents and the grandparents at night. People said, what are you doing opening the pool up and the library and all this other stuff? She said, the school belongs to the community. The kids can go here during the day and the parents and the grandparents can come here and use it at night. Well, why wouldn't we open the doors? It's a community institution. And so, you know, I, I was just struck by how powerful this sense of love was. I mean, they loved each other. This sense of family, this sense of connectedness, and that's what made them so good. We've seen some great high school teams, right? Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, formerly known as Lou Alcinda, his power memorial team was pretty good. Um, LeBron James played on a pretty good high school team. The Ben Franklin team up in New York with Walter Berry was phenomenal. Um, Jalen Rose in Detroit played on a Southwestern high school team that had three guys, three guards that went to the NBA. There have been some great high school teams before. So what separates this team was their connectedness, right? Reggie Williams and Muggsy Bogues were together 16 hours a day out of a 24-hour day. Their parents called them Mutt and Jeff. <laughs> they could communicate without speaking. So, you know, somebody told me the other day, I was in the Baltimore Civic Center and I remember this play. Muggsy was dribbling at top speed. He got to half court. He looked away from the rim through an underhand pass. Everybody thought, what is he doing? Reggie Williams came skying out the sky, grabbed the ball, dunked it, and the crowd lost their ever-loving mind. And they said, how did that happen? Because that's how connected they were. They didn't have to say, hey, Muggs, I'm open. Throw that pass. He saw it, Reggie saw it, they locked eyes and they knew, Shorty going to get me the ball. <laughs> Nobody saw it until Reggie grabbed the ball out of the sky and then they said, holy smokes. Like, I don't know if, for the people in this room that actually saw it, you know, you're lucky because you saw one of the most majestic, artistic expressions on a basketball court that's ever been seen. And uh, we'll see some good players again. We'll never see a collection of talent like that again. Absolutely. And uh, we're going to be opening it up to uh, questions from all of you very soon. But you've mentioned Muggsy so many times so far in, in your introduction and everything. I know for me, and I didn't know what to expect when I opened it up because it was just such a, it was such a world that was wide open to me about how the story would be told. But for me, Muggsy was, the, was one of the stars of the book. So many stories ended up circling back to him. Was he that way for you? I mean, when you look at the book, if you had to pick a star of the book, um, 
would he would he be uh, would he be a candidate for that? Yeah, I think him and Coach Wade kind of you know co-star uh, more heavily than others here. And Muggsy is the most revolutionary basketball talent we've ever seen. We've already seen a reasonable facsimile of Michael Jordan in a guy by the name of Kobe Bryant. We might see ten more Michael Jordans before we ever see, and I don't think we will ever see, another Muggsy Bogues. The shortest player ever in the history of the NBA. He could dominate a game without scoring a point. When I saw him play, I'd never seen that before. I thought I had to score the basketball in addition to getting my guys involved. Muggsy did not have to score a point. I remember watching him play at Wake Forest and Al McGuire lost his mind. said, I've never seen anything like this. Now, Al McGuire has seen a lot of basketball. Um, Tommy Amaker, Johnny Dawkins have one of the greatest college backcourts of all time, right, at Duke. Duke. They went to the Final Four championship game, lost to Louisville. Johnny Dawkins had never been held to under double digits until Muggsy got up underneath him, right? I don't know if you guys remember the World Championships. This was the last amateur team to win a gold medal, right, after John Thompson's 88 team lost in the Olympics. So this was the last amateur world championship team to win a gold medal. Muggsy was the starting point guard. And there was an article, it was in Spain, there was an article in the paper, they called him La Chispa Negra, the black spark. And they said he looks like the little brother, but he is the one who commands and directs. There was a scorer who was averaging 30 points a game in that tournament by the name of Drazen Petrovic. And they stuck Muggsy on Drazen Petrovic, and he scored eight points, and he was so frustrated, he said he'd never experienced anything like that before. (laughs) So you get a sense of how magnificent Muggsy was on the basketball court and how revolutionary, but then you also get this sense of his hunger and his drive and his mom and his family and this was another thing that I wanted to, you know, about this book was the basketball is great, but, you know, we go into the apartments, we go into Lafayette courts, we go into the classrooms, we go into the struggles and the trials and the tribulations. You know, there's a, a story that Reggie Williams shared with me where he said he never knew he was poor because, you know, his mom always held it together. They always had food to eat. House was always clean. You know, he didn't feel like he was poor. And then one day, while he's at Dunbar, he's in his bedroom, he's watching Soul Train, he's chilling, and mom comes in and just breaks down in tears. And she just said, oh, baby, I don't know how we're going to make it. And that was the first time he realized, wow, I had no idea that, you know, my mom was this superwoman. And he told her, he said, just give me a few more years, I'm going to take care of everything. So, um, yeah, Muggsy was phenomenal when I found out what, what type of a leader he was outside of, uh, you know, just the, the basketball stuff on the court. The psychology, right, is, is crazy because um, folks would see him in practice dominating and it would permeate the team. They'd be like, this dude is little and he is killing me. And they would say, you know what? I'm going to get in somebody's jock the same way Muggsy gets in somebody's jock, right? I want to steal the ball the same way Muggsy's stealing the ball. And so the big guys would be like, I'm going to dominate by blocking shots the same way that Muggsy dominates by stealing the ball. So there was this hunger. 
and that hunger, I mean, guys were hungry anyway because Dunbar was an institution that was excellent long before, right? The great Sugar Cane established that legacy. Skip Wise established that legacy. So when you put on a Dunbar uniform, you were wearing a badge of honor to the community that came out to fully support. And in addition to that, you have Muggsy's hunger creating this dynamic element within the team where they ripped each other apart in practice. And Gary Graham said, man, can you imagine what we're going to do to other teams that we don't like if we're doing this to each other? So that was what struck me. And, and how great was it to hear, and, and I, I promise you afterwards we'll get to everybody's questions, but how great was it to hear the stories of those families and the, the backgrounds of where the where these kids, and we keep we got to remember, we're talking about you wrote about a bunch of kids. Yeah. You know, where these kids came from and how they came up and what they went through to get their youngsters to the point where they were. Right. And, you know, that was a great part of the research and the writing for me, too, because, Dave, you know, we, we do the same type of work and we love the games, but, you know, we don't want to write about LeBron scoring 30. We just want to watch it and enjoy it. We are interested in telling the stories behind the story, and that's the power of the narrative. That's where the real power lays. And so just to find out about all of the stuff that happened, yeah, they played a great brand of basketball, right? Perhaps the greatest high school team ever. We might never see anything like it again. Cheapest entertainment ticket in Baltimore, standing room only crowds. It was a show. When they walked in the gym, right, people started yelling out, here come the show. But it was the other stuff that really grabbed me, right? It was, uh, you know, Muggsy and, and Tim Dawson and, and David Wingate cutting last period class to go grab a sandwich at the Old Town Market, thinking they were being slick, sneaking in the back door. And as soon as they opened the door, Wade grabbing Wingate by the collar and lifting him up and slamming him against the wall, saying, what are you doing, dummies? You know, it was like those type of things that were really like, okay, yeah, this is some great basketball, but it's about humanity. It's about love. He was tough on those kids, but there was a purpose in what he wanted from them and what he expected from them. And again, we talked about the drugs and the crime and how this proud city was struggling to deal with this plague that was um, terrorizing the community. And in the midst of all of this, you had this man that said, you know, I'm going to use this game and, and this sport and this ball to teach these life lessons. So, and his story, his his story, as told in the book, is just it's mind blowing. And I'm not even gonna. I mean, the story about when he went to when he went to Pennsylvania for the uh, road game and what developed out of that, the way you built toward that. He was just going on. He was on the bus on the way on a road trip with the uh, with the team to play near Pennsylvania. And it was in Western Pennsylvania. It was near Pittsburgh, and that fold, unfolded into a story about what was really at the core and at the essence of who Bob Wade was uh, growing up and as a man, as an adult, as a, a professional athlete, because he played, played in the NFL. You know, he went to, he went to Morgan. He, he played for the Colts. He played for the Redskins. He played uh, for the Steelers. And uh, how that all tied into that trip and how it told such a rich story about Bob Wade's life, it was, it was fascinating. Yeah, thank you, man. I appreciate that. So we won't give that one away because that's a that's a heavy. That's hit. a good one. That's <laughs> a good one. Please, that uh, <laughs> if they have no other reason to buy the book, and yes, you should have a million of them to buy this book. Buy it for that story, honestly. Mm-hmm.
This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.